Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode three in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled Pentecost, the Gift of the Holy Spirit, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these incredible verses we're looking at today? Oh, this is one of the great moments in redemptive history. This is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church, empowering them for ministry. Uh, it's an incredible day, uh, an incredible moment, and so I'm excited to be able to walk through it with you today. Well, let's read the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2 to set the stage for our conversation. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. What were the Jews celebrating at Pentecost, and what is the spiritual significance of this celebration? Okay, so Pentecost means 50 days. So Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples, it says in Acts chapter 1. So there's about a 10-day lapse between when Jesus ascended into heaven and the uh, day of Pentecost. And uh, it's one of the three main uh, Jewish festivals in which uh, Jewish men were required by uh, Jewish law to assemble in one place which God would choose, he said to Moses. Now, Moses hadn't entered the promised land yet, hmm. and it wouldn't be until many years later, centuries later, that it would be Jerusalem, the city of David, that would be chosen. Uh, there were other places where the tabernacle was, et cetera, but eventually became Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship. And so the men would come and they'd bring their families too, and they would assemble for uh, these three feasts. Now, the first feast was Passover, so that was the uh, the uh, feast of, of the sacrifice of mm. Uh, the atoning sacrifice of the lamb, going back, of course, to the shedding of the Passover lamb's blood. And so that's that forgiveness of sins. And Jesus fulfilled that in the uh, in his death on the cross. Then 50 days later, it's uh, the feast of ingathering. So that's the first fruits, basically. It's the beginning of the Jewish harvest when um, the crop be begins to be brought in. And then the final feast, I believe the Feast of Trumpets, is when the last uh, of the uh, crop has been brought in. Mm -hmm. So two of those three have been fulfilled. 
the last one hasn't been fulfilled yet. Hmm. So the Feast of Trumpets, or uh, I think it is uh, at the end, yeah. uh, but it's definitely the Feast of, of uh, last fruits to some degree. And so we would imagine that would come right before the second coming of Christ hmm. where the last elect person is converted. So the idea is these this it's the fulfillment of an image wow. and the harvest being gathered here are human beings, their souls. So that's what Pentecost was all about. Now, verse one says they were all together in one place. Who was together and why do you think it was important that the spirit was poured out when they were all together rather than only on a few of them? Right. Well, you keep in mind from uh, John chapter 20, Thomas wasn't there in the upper room the first day when Jesus appeared and showed the evidence of his of his resurrection. So it wasn't until a week later that Thomas came, the so-called doubting Thomas. Um, well, this time everybody's there and mm-hmm. everybody is the 120 and especially the, the uh, well, now the 12 apostles, now mm-hmm. that Matthias has replaced Judas. So they're all together in one place and they're meeting together. So it all happened at the same time. They all came together. Now, we should not imagine that this 100 120 represents every redeemed person. Jesus interacted with a lot of people who then genuinely believe. Think of the man born blind. Mm-hmm. Um, think about, you know, the demoniac, the gatherings who wanted to follow Jesus and preach. And he said, no, go home and tell everything, tell everyone what God has done for you. Mm. I mean, so there are genuine believers out there. Syrophoenician woman uh, probably continue to live there in Tyre um, where she was. So this is not, these are not all the believers, but this is the, the core center of the church. Um, assembling together, waiting on God, waiting to be clothed with power from on high, Luke 24 says, um, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. How does Luke describe the actual coming of the Holy Spirit and what miracles are associated with this gift in verses 2 through 4? Well, it starts with the word suddenly. Okay, so out of nowhere, suddenly as they're waiting, it comes. And the first thing they get is a supernatural sound, the sound uh, of a blowing violent wind Hmm. like a hurricane force, but there's no actual moving of air. It's a sound without without the actual wind. Hmm. And this is what gathered the crowd. Um, you know, uh, if, you, if you look at it, uh, it says uh, those staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing uh, men from every nation under heaven, verse 6, when they heard this sound, so it's the sound that gathered everyone. It was hmm. a, it was an amazing supernatural sound, sound of a rushing wind. A violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So it was very loud. Um, you get this in Revelation. There's lots of loud noises, mm. the voice like thunder or mm. some, you know, God is good at this. So it's very <laughs> dramatic. God gets the attention of those he's trying to yeah. communicate with. And also yeah. we need to keep in mind the analogy Jesus gave to Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. Mm. And uh, he said, uh, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot crawl into his mother's womb a second time of you born. And he said, and Jesus likened it to the movement of the wind. He said, uh, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So the movement of the spirit is likened to a wind. And we also get this in the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, which also can mean wind. Um, and so sometimes you're not sure whether it's the Holy Spirit or a wind blowing. Hmm. Um, And so it's reasonable for the spirit to be likened to a a wind at this point. So God chooses this noise, it seems, at least Mm -hmm. in part, to get the attention of those in the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, It comes as a wind. So Mm -hmm. again, you've made those connections for us. That's part one. Um, It comes suddenly. So it seems like something that they were anticipating, but maybe not expecting 
right at that moment when it mm-hmm. comes. What was the second miracle associated yes. with the Spirit's coming mentioned in verse 3? And why do you think the Spirit used this display to reveal his coming? Yeah, uh, so part two is is tongues of fire that came down from heaven and separated and came to rest on each of them. So the idea of this separate, separated is one Spirit but going to each of the individuals. Mm. And so uh, it came to rest on them. I think similar to the Holy Spirit coming as a dove and resting on Jesus. And so the idea is that all of them, and it says this openly, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm. So it's one spirit given to all of them. And so tongues of fire. Now, why why like fire? Um, boy, there's a lot of mm. reasons why. We don't know. I mean, it's just for speculating. But um, I would begin, I guess, with the burning bush, um, the idea of a fire that's in the midst of God's people, the bush representing Israel at that point, and the bush is not consumed. Mm. And so there's a fire burning that um, doesn't uh, consume them. Then you've got the um, uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and fire descends from heaven and does consume the sacrifice and the altar and everything. And so that fire from heaven represents the movement of God mm. very, very powerfully. Then you've got Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're just walking with Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus. And he begins to share the word of God with them. And when they get done and Jesus disappears from them, they said, we're not our hearts burning within us. When he spoke the word to us, so the the idea of a, of burning is that of of uh, zeal, of heat, also of purity. Um, I think this is interesting that that water and fire are both used in the Old Testament as images of purification and also of death, mm. of judgment. And so the waters of the flood killed every human being on earth except the ones on the ark. Mm. But water is also used as an image of purification, of cleansing. And then a fire uh, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, burned them up. Uh, and fire is frequently a picture of judgment, like the, um, you know, the sons of Aaron that offered unauthorized fire, and fire came out and burned up Nadab and Abihu. So that mm. could be judgment. But also it says uh, in Malachi that the uh, fire of the Lord will purify the Levites. Mm. So there's a sense of fire being uh, purifying. And so the idea is of purity, holiness, zeal, light. Uh, also, it spreads, you know, fire to fire, like one one match can light a whole forest on fire. So the, mm-hmm. the spreading, I don't know, those are just different thoughts on why God chose to come through the Holy Spirit in tongues of fire. Now, you mentioned also this uh, phrase in verse 4, being filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And is there a difference between being filled with the Spirit and being baptized with the Spirit? Well, here we get into some some long-standing controversy uh, that there is in the in the Christian church. There are some Christians who have in the past called themselves Pentecostals or still are called Pentecostals, or the entire movement of Pentecostalism extends not just to churches that call themselves Pentecostal, uh, but also Assembly of God churches or other churches that are charismatic, et cetera, from the Greek word for spiritual gifts. And so um, I think there is a very uh, significant difference but a, a relationship between being baptized with the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. Mm. So I believe that the baptism of the Spirit is a secret um action done by Jesus at the moment of conversion, where, wherein a person uh, 
being born again, having the heart of stone removed and the heart of flesh put in, uh, is made alive spiritually and comes to a genuine faith in Christ. First uh, Corinthians 12, 13 says they were baptized by one spirit into one body. Mm-hmm. John the Baptist said of Jesus, I baptize you with water, uh, you being the, the Jewish nation. I baptize all of you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire there being, I believe, judgment. He will clear his threshing floor and gathering the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So that's judgment. So he's either going to immerse, that is, baptize you in the Holy Spirit, or he's going to immerse you in the lake of fire, one mm-hmm. or the other, but that's Jesus. That's how great he is. So the idea is, I believe, my doctrine, uh, what I think the New Testament teaches is every single genuine Christian is baptized with the Spirit once for all time. Mm. But then they are called on to be continually filled with the Spirit. Or as Ephesians 5, 18 says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, passive imperative, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, to be filled with the Spirit means to have the Spirit control you, to have him control your mind and your heart, to have him control your mouth, to have him move you, to act in certain ways. So when you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. You're going to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, and then you're going to do the things the Spirit wants you to do. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Mm. I think we can and should be filled again and again and again and again with the Holy Spirit of God. So I would go with John Stott. He wrote a book called Baptism and Fullness, and he made that distinction. There's, there's, they're related. No one, I think, can be filled. Well, I don't want to go too far. I think you can be filled with the Spirit and not be a Christian. I think that that could happen like in the Old Testament, like when the Spirit came on on Balaam's donkey and mm. he spoke. So, you know, that could happen. And I think it's important that we, we acknowledge the Holy Spirit didn't begin working on human beings on the day of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. He had been working throughout all of the 39 books of the Old Testament. The prophets spoke only by the Spirit of Christ working in them. The Spirit was active in David's life. He said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Mm. But this is a universal outpouring on all all the people of God, not just on key individuals like kings and prophets, but on everybody. That's what's going on. So I don't want to go uh, so far as to say the Spirit cannot take over somebody and make them say something or do something. But when we speak of this filling of the Spirit, I think we generally would say you, you those are only Christians. And if you are a Christian, you've already been baptized with the Spirit. Now, before we move on from verse 4, along similar lines, there's immense controversy over the issue of speaking in tongues. Sure. So sticking strictly with Acts 2-4, what can we learn about what happened at that moment, and how should these tongues or languages inform our understanding of this gift? Well, first of all, the word tongues is a bit of an archaic um, word in the English language. In the KJV, King James Version, um, you know, tongues are languages. Um, and so by languages, we mean something intelligible, something with grammar, with vocabulary, with logic, with repeatable patterns, not gibberish, but something that is an actual language that can be understood. It communicates from person A to person B. That's what language is for, to get the ideas from one mind to another mind. And so the gift of language, I think, is essential to us being created in the image of God, the ability that we have to understand abstract reasoning Mm. and uh, to have things described for us that are not physically present, but we can see them like I could describe you know, uh, Mount Everest to you. And I could say, picture this lofty mountain windswept with snow and with ice and, uh, 
and this ridge that the hikers are climbing along and they've got crampons and you can hear the crunching of the snow. Well, I'm creating images, all of it with words. Animals can't do this. Animals don't have that ability. Mm. So it's essential to our, our being in the image of God. So I think that the best way to understand this is that they were speaking languages as the spirit moved them and they're about to go communicate. Now, Peter's gonna preach in one language, probably Aramaic, maybe Greek, but I don't know. But they're all going to hear in their own native languages. So definitely that later in the same chapter is languages, mm -hmm. all right, that they understood, mm -hmm. Latin or Greek or some other thing. Um, so here I think that's the best way to understand. Now, if you get to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, those chapters are dealing with tongues and prophecy. And I had to deal with this as I preached through 1 Corinthians and trying to understand what that is. So I think there can be something like a, a secret prayer language, but again, it's not gibberish. Uh, it's got to be a recognizable pattern that can be can be uh, studied and understood. So at any rate, these were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in languages as the Spirit enabled them. Verses 5 through 13 capture the astonishment and the response of the crowd. Mm -hmm. In verse 5, why were these Jews from so many remote places staying in Jerusalem at this time? How does this providential occurrence fit in with God's purposes here? And were there any Gentiles there uh, mentioned in Acts 2? Yeah, so um, God-fearing Jews from every nation came under heaven. Now, why were they in so many nations? They were there because of the so-called diaspora, the spreading of the Jews mm. after the two exiles. The first exile of the northern kingdom happened uh, under the Assyrians, and the second exile and the final exile happened um, under the Babylonians. Then a very small number of Jews, 42,000 came back in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and um, they rebuilt Jerusalem, and then they continued the history, and that's what Jesus came into. Mm. And so by the time of Jesus, you know, Josephus says a quarter of a million Jews went up to Jerusalem for the Passover. But how many lived in Palestine, I don't really know. So a small number went back, but many of them just stayed where they were, mm. and they never came back. And so Cyrus the Great issued an edict saying, as many of, as you of you would like to, let him go up to Jerusalem and may God be with you. But many did not go. And so they stayed in Babylon or they stayed wherever they were and they were spread all over the Greco-Roman world. But they still would travel back using those fine Roman roads and using the, the sea lanes of the sea, uh, Mediterranean Sea back uh, in obedience to the law of Moses. They would go back for... Um, for these uh, feasts, Passover and Pentecost. And so these were God-fearing Jews. They, and it says God-fearing because they took their religion very seriously. They, you know, I would guess many of the Jews just said, look, we can't make it back. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think God really expects us to go, does he? And they just didn't come. But others like, no, it's in the law. We're going to go. And so they came together. Secondly, you asked about Gentiles. There were um, in all of those localities some Gentiles who became enthralled and 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 fascinated by monotheism, by the monotheism and the heritage of the Jewish people. Mm. And they wanted to become Jews. They were proselytes. Mm. And so they were Gentiles and the men would be circumcised 
and required to obey the law of Moses. And maybe they even were were uh, baptized in water. I think John the Baptist picked up on that and intertestamental practice of Jewish converts. But they're mentioned right here. These proselytes uh, were there. These converts, these Gentile converts to Judaism were there as well. These are first fruits. These are people from all over the world mm. who are be- believing in Jesus. Jesus is the light for the Gentiles. And so that's what's happening. Verse 6 says, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Uh, is this the rushing wind? Is this the speaking? This is the rushing wind I that they're hearing the, and I think it's the rushing wind at first. But then as the church spills out from the upper room into the streets, there's a second mystery, hmm. a second miracle. And that is that all of the people there are hearing the apostles speaking in their own native language. Yeah. So you can imagine – there is the lingua franca, the, the language that binds them together, probably Greek at that point, more than Latin. Um, and so they would all speak Greek. Um, they're coming from all over the world, uh, so that would be their common language. But then they're Ar- Arabs, Arabians, Cretans, uh, residents of Mesopotamia, Parthians, Medes, Elamites. They all had their own languages. Mm. They did not expect to hear Elamitish, you know, when they're there in Jerusalem. But they come there, and that's what they're hearing, the mother tongue spoken perfectly. And they're like, what in the world? Yeah. It's a miracle. Yeah. It's an absolute miracle. Now, again, I don't know what's going on. It just shows the ability God has to get inside our literal physical brains and the, the neural paths from the eardrum to the brain and make it do stuff. I don't know what else to say, but something's going on. One sound's going out into the world— airwaves and pressure waves and the eardrums are vibrating. But what they're hearing is their mother tongue. Now that's a miracle. And it is interesting. You know, I think the the precise nature of why it's so astonishing to them is it wasn't like these were people from their country speaking right. this language. They asked the question, aren't, aren't these all Galileans? And, yeah. and we're hearing this language. So it was clearly something that was otherworldly, not just the result of some either natural learning or coincidence that there were people from their country that were already there. Ahead right. Of I also think it's significant for us to see in this a, a gracious, merciful reversal of the judgment of the Tower of Babel hmm. because the Tower of Babel, they're all getting together hmm. in a rebellious, wicked sort of way to make a name for themselves by building a tower that reaches to heaven. What an arrogant thing to do. So God comes down, confuses the language, and scatters them. Now what is he doing? Bringing them together. Hmm. And when we get to heaven, we are not going to have a language problem in heaven. We will understand each other. Now, my Hebrew professor said, because we're all going to study Hebrew. We'll all know <laughs> Hebrew. So I don't know that that's true. And I don't know that we will learn a new language, but it could be a continual miracle in our in our resurrected brains where mm. we will understand each other but still be speaking our own native language. I don't really know. Yeah. But it's definitely a miracle here, what's going on. Yeah, interesting to try to harmonize that with that picture of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You're thinking, right. well, language. Are they still speaking that? It's just amazing. God's so many things incredible we don't know. grace to us in that. Yeah. Um, so I guess a question that might flow from this for our listeners and, and for us as well is if God has this kind of power over language, why doesn't he do this every time, right? In other words, why does God not put, let's say, Wycliffe Bible translators permanently out of business and forever end the need for years of training in language for our missionaries? Well, God apparently wants that process. He That's part of his purpose. And so, you know, I think I think He God is not in as much of a rush 
as we might think he should be or, or as that we are. Now, we should all of us have a sense of urgency, hmm. but we're not going to get to a village or a city or a place a day too late concerning one of the elect chosen in Christ before mm -hmm. the creation of the world. We just didn't quite make it. The connecting flight didn't work. We were delayed and we didn't get there in time and now he's in hell. That just isn't gonna happen. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't relax, but we should understand God wants the process. And so it takes years to learn these languages. Mm -hmm. You think about, uh, I mean, we're talking, I don't know, how many how many Greek words did we learn in studying Greek? I'm, I think like four or 5,000. Greek words. Then you got all the grammar, and that would get you. I remember the the word list got us down to the words that were used ten times or more mm -hmm. in the New Testament. So the the real rare ones, the words that were used less than ten times, down to five or three or one. You took those one at a time when you're yeah. studying a specific yeah. passage. Here's what they call the hopbox, mm -hmm. a one off word. Um, anyway, it takes a long, 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 long time to learn a language, and sometimes you never really, really get it. You ever hear somebody who speaks really accurate? English, but with an accent, mm -hmm. Chinese accent, German accent, French accent, and they never lose it. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's interesting. So God, I think, wants the long, hard work and the process. Mm. Uh, and in that, relationships are built. You can lead your language tutor to Christ. You're humbled for a while. Mm -hmm. it takes you a while. You're like a baby in that culture for a while, and you immerse yourself. I remember when I was learning Japanese, uh, when I was a missionary in Japan, um, I... I, I began to realize the process um, and to understand what kind of people did really well in language learning. So I thought that there were three attributes you needed to, to be quickly proficient in the language. Number one, you needed a good ear, like a musician's ear, the ability to hear the difference between tones, especially mm. in certain languages. Mm -hmm. Number two, you needed a good memory. You had to remember vocabulary and, and grammar and all that. And number three, you needed an outgoing personality, the ability to immerse yourself, throw yourself into the midst, midst of a crowd, and they'll catch you. <laughs> um, and you're out there using your language freely and making stupid mistakes, and everyone's laughing at you. And those people learn faster. Hmm. And the people like me that were more, you know, perfectionist and introverts and had to get it just right, yeah. we were slower. Hmm. But at any rate, that whole process is part of the missionary endeavor. It's going on. And we just have to think God in his wisdom knew what he was doing. In verses 9 through 11, Luke lists out the various places that these folks came from. How does that relate to Acts 1-8, which we've said is really a linchpin for this whole book as we study? And how might these converts have gone back and affected their home countries? Well, this is, um, this is the spread of the gospel along the lines of every tribe, language, people, and nation. And along political lines, we have to understand the Roman Empire now has been dominant since about 150 BC, something like that. I think Pompey won a battle, and, mm -hmm. and so you got Palestine. And so the Greek days are just about over at this point. Greek has been defeated by Rome. This is a Roman world now. And the Roman world is united with roads and commerce and um, culture and uh, Roman law. And that is beneficial for the spread of the gospel. But we've got all of these people, and look at the lists here, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Rome, um, 
uh, uh, near Cyrene, sorry, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, so from Rome, mm-hmm. Cretans and Arabs, uh, the, you know, just that every tribe, language, people, and nation. So that's yeah. what we got there. So you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, mm-hmm. and you'll be my witnesses to all those people. What did the people say that the apostles were declaring? And why is that significant? Well, they were declaring the wonders of God in their own tongue. So the wonders of God. So I don't know. That's a broad term. It's like <laughs> for me as a preacher, it's like, let's do that. I mean, lot, it's like, right? let's yeah, get up. It's like, you, do it. <laughs> Wes, you're a worship leader. The two of us, we can get together. I tell you what, let's declare the wonders of God. So I don't know Every what that week, is. Let's do it. <laughs> Obviously, it the greatest wonder of God is Jesus. Mm. Um, and so the centerpiece, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So, you know, the miracles of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the incarnation, that would be center of what they were proclaiming. But they probably were proclaiming natural theology as well. Like in the book of Job, God was declaring the wonders of God in creation. So who knows? Uh, that's just generally what, what they were proclaiming, the wonders of God. And by the way, I think that's a great way to look at evangelism. We should just say our job is to go out and declare the wonders of God, especially mm. in Christ. Mm. What question does the crowd ask at this point? Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? <laughs> okay, so what is going on here? What's happening? Yeah, and God is shaking things up. We have to believe that the status quo is mm. Satan's. It belongs to the mm. devil and demons. And so God comes in in Christ and in the Holy Spirit and shakes things up and changes things. Mm. They're on the road to destruction. Now they're on the road to life. And so that's, to me, that's awesome. So they're, they're saying, what does this mean? What this means is God is breaking into history mm. and saving sinners. Why do you think those in the crowd who mocked them related their speech to the effect of wine? And as we wrap up, what final thoughts do you have on this? Well, uh, it's interesting. I already quoted Ephesians 5.18, which says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery or dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So what wine does, which is makes people happy loosens things up, makes people social with each other, makes people outgoing and friendly and comfortable with each other. The Holy Spirit does all of that and much, much more. Hmm. And so I think the idea is they're acting crazy. They must be drunk. Um, and so we'll get into Peter's clever response to that in, you know, next time. But you know, the, the fact is the Holy Spirit's effect on people is similar to uh, to wine or alcohol, which are frequently called spirits, mm-hmm. you know. So, so some people thought that there's a connection, like 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 alcohol, fermented beverage, was a bridge into the spiritual world. Uh, the real bridge is the action of the Holy Spirit. And what is my final thought here? My final thought is going to go to go back to Acts one eight. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and be my witnesses. And so they're in the upper room. They're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Remember, after the resurrection, one week later. They're still in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. So seven fiftieths of the Pentecost span, you know, one, you know, basically one seventh of that time, they're still in terror Mm. of death. They're Mm. in terror of the Jews. What does that tell you? The Holy Spirit's everything. Jesus's finished work would not have made it out of Jerusalem would not have been applied. His blood would not have been painted spiritually on anybody if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves people out of the upper room, out of the security of behind locked doors, and courageously spilling out into the streets, come what may, Mm. 
in downtown Jerusalem, in the very city where their Lord was crucified, boldly, without fear, testifying to the resurrection of Christ. The Holy Spirit does that. Mm -hmm. So what does that say to me? If I'm going to be a witness, I need to be in the presence of God and ask him to fill me with the Spirit. I don't think I need a new Pentecost, but what I do need is I need the Holy Spirit to be poured out on me so that I can be his witness. Well, this has been episode three in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We'll invite you to join us next time for episode four entitled The Prophet Joel Fulfilled, where we'll discuss Acts chapter two, verses 14 through 21. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.